Hello, I'm Marianne Hitt. And I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, we'll be talking about Zika panic and how that issue and so many others are at stake in the election this fall. And we have a great interview with Jacob Smith, former climate staffer for Bernie Sanders, about this election and the progressive movement. But first, Marianne and I have some catching up to do. Anna Jane. Hi, Marianne. How are you? I am great. I have got something to tell you about. So I was at dinner with this friend of mine recently, and she was telling me about how she had just turned down a Caribbean vacation for herself and her new husband. What? Who yes. does that? I know. I will take that gladly off their hands. <laughs> I'll, I'll call her. I'll let her know. <laughs> but the reason was because of the Zika virus, <sighs> because she and her new husband are trying to get pregnant And there is a disease out there called the Zika virus that is in mosquitoes. And if you get this disease while you're pregnant, the baby is at risk of being born with some pretty serious birth defects and developmental problems. And so my friend who is trying to get pregnant is avoiding any place on earth that the Zika virus is showing up because she doesn't want to get bitten by a mosquito. And if you think about mosquito bites. I mean, how many times have you gotten bitten by a mosquito in your life? Oh my gosh. I live on the Gulf Coast right now. I get bitten by like 25 mosquitoes every day. (laughs) I know. And the thing that struck me about this is, you know, I'm a mom and I remember when I was trying to get pregnant and then I was pregnant and I was being so careful about what I ate and what I drank and, and my exercise. And to try for that whole period to not get bitten by one mosquito, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it wouldn't be, fe- I would have to move from where I live because there, it's just not a feasible way of leave- living. And what this has to do with climate change is that as it gets hotter and humid for longer, uh, the mosquito season is getting longer. Mosquitoes are around for longer periods. Uh, actually, there was just a, a list of 10 cities that was released, uh, places that are going to see longer mosquito seasons. And that just ups everybody's odds of, of the Zika virus spreading and more people getting exposed to it. So this is not a remote issue anymore. And it's, it's a place, I think, where climate change is touching people in their everyday lives. But I don't think people are connecting those dots. Do you? Yeah, I don't know. I was just texting with one of my best friends who's an OBGYN um, who also just had an adorable baby boy two months ago. And I was asking her, like, from a perspective of being a doctor and a new mother, what do you think, you know, how do you, what do you think of this whole Zika virus thing? And she was like, it's absolutely terrifying. I'm so glad that I'm not trying to get pregnant right now. And I just had a very healthy little baby boy. But I think it is beginning, you know, I'm not quite sure if people are, are connecting it with climate change, but I think it's beginning to seep in to, you know, kind of our awareness. And I think as that's happening, those those connections are being made. And, and part of our job is to help make them. Again, I think people think of these issues as being remote and distant from them. You know, I, I am not a person who lives next to a polluting fossil fuel site. I am not a person who, uh, you know, lives in a place that's going to be flooded tomorrow by a rising sea level. But these are these are things that can touch anybody anywhere ultimately. And how, you know, I wonder how many women out there right now are trying to get pregnant or hoping to get pregnant uh, that are planning their lives around avoiding these certain places and 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 the mosquito is not gonna stay put, you know. And this is this is a way that climate change is touching all of the people we love. Absolutely, including me. You know, if me and my partner wanted to have to have a baby, we'd have to do it in the next couple of years and we'd literally probably have to move from where we live because of how many mosquitoes are. 
and the likelihood of Zika, you know, making it up to lower Alabama. That's insane. So then to add to the insanity, um, and maybe you saw this, that Congress cannot fund the response to the Zika virus. So the federal agencies that are the ones in charge of creating the plan and fighting the mosquitoes are running out of money. And it's because there was a bill in Congress to get the money in place to fight it. And uh, the Republicans put a lot of poison pill type of of, uh, attachments to that legislation that were things that Democrats couldn't tolerate. So nothing passed. And so now we are on the verge of this epidemic and our Congress cannot get its act together to do something about it. And and so that that is just one of the many things that is at stake in this election. And, you know, whether we are going to move forward on these big challenges that affect everybody or whether we are going to have a train wreck on our hands. And um, I'm really excited about today's interview because we're talking with Jacob Smith, who worked for Bernie Sanders as his climate staffer, who's been on the inside in the Congress and is now on the outside making a film about the rise of the progressive movement. And it's going to be a great conversation. So stay tuned right after this. Hi, my name is Grace, calling from New Canaan, Connecticut, and your dinner party climate fact for today is this. If Donald Trump is elected president, he will be the only head of state in the world who is a climate skeptic, and that includes Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. One of my great friends is here with us today. Uh, We met when I was a baby activist living in Montana, and he was in Colorado. We were both working to protect the beautiful places of the West, and he has since gone on to do all sorts of incredible things, including serving as mayor of Golden, Colorado, uh, writing a book called The Nimble Nonprofit, and working as Bernie Sanders climate staffer in Washington. And he is now making a film about the rise of the progressive movement that we have seen over the past few months in this election season. So welcome and thank you so much for being here, Jacob Smith. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Um, yeah, so we're, we're calling this podcast No Place Like Home. Um, and I'm really interested in the concept of how our connection to places, like kind of our, our home places, you know, for me, my connection to both the Appalachian Mountains where I grew up and the Gulf Coast, which is where I spent summers with my mother's family, has been a very big driver in my climate activism and just like a sense of really wanting to protect these places that I hold very dear and that hold a lot of people that I love. And I know I was just out in Colorado recently, and I know you're you're from Colorado. And one of my best friends is like a fifth generation in Colorado. And, and like, I I don't know if I know of any other state that has such pride about about their state. And uh, I was just curious, like, how how the place that you live in really does, like, influence how you think about doing this work. Oh, that's such a good question. I think that I moved around a bunch when I was little. My dad was in the service. And I don't think I knew what it meant to have your place, to have a place that felt like home until I'd found it, as opposed to some people maybe that find it or have it all the time and then they realize how important it is when they leave and they have to come back. For me, I didn't know it existed until I'd really settled in Colorado, which I, I was a kid when we moved there. I'm not I'm not a 
Colorado native, mm-hmm. but it's very much home. Yeah, I think, I don't know how it doesn't affect the way that you think about politics and values and social change, but I don't know if I can tell you, I don't know if I can tease out those things. So to then become a mayor, I think it may seem glamorous on the outside, but my sense is it's also a thankless job, you know, not necessarily of high pay, long hours, a lot of public service, and clearly you have got to be very dedicated to a place and to people to take that on. At least that's my sense. I mean, and so you you found this home in Colorado and then obviously you got called to serve it in some way. So how did you get there? Why did you decide to run for mayor and what was it like when you won and when you were actually having the job? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll say it is actually a lot of fun. Oh, it's, it is. I was wrong. <laughs> well, no, I don't know if I don't know if you were wrong. It, it's a ton of work and in some ways there's a lot of pieces of it that can be thankless. But on the other hand, it's awesome. It's it's really fun in addition to being hard work. I don't have a great story about why I ran. I thought, so I'd been on council a few years when the mayor's seat came up and I, I just thought that I could do a better job than the incumbent who was also running. He was a great guy, deeply committed to the community as well, but Golden had been in this transition and the, like many communities around the country, certainly in the West, lots of people moving into the community for the quality of life. And so those communities are changing from like old school company towns to the politics that come and the values that come or the social diversity that comes when you get an influx of much younger people. Mm. And so I just kind of hit it at that, at that moment. Um, so you have gone from this grassroots advocacy background to local politics to all of a sudden... Washington, D.C., working for Senator Bernie Sanders, who is now a progressive superhero. And you're making a film about this journey that Bernie Sanders and the progressive movement have been on. And I am, I just, I'm sure we could talk about it for hours um, because it's so fascinating. I think from the outside, it looks like something revolutionary is happening and something big is happening with the progressive movement. And so I want to have a conversation with you about what you're learning and what you're seeing. And so for starters, um, you can just tell us a little bit about the movie as much as you want to share or don't want to share. And then some of the initial insights that you have had about what's going on right now with this. Are we having a progressive revolution? What's uh, What are you learning? Sure. The the film itself, it's called Waking the Sleeping Giant, The Making of a Political Revolution. We begin a political revolution to transform our country economically, politically, socially, and environmentally. The original idea was a really traditional behind-the-scenes documentary about Bernie. And we really quickly realized that wasn't the right story to tell, partly because, honestly, Bernie is the Bernie we see publicly is really similar to the Bernie behind the scenes. And so it's not like there's this different person back there that you could tell a really cool story about. I mean, that's that really is Bernie. Maybe you'd show him with his grandkids and you'd see this really soft side. But in general, like he's the same guy. It's part of his appeal, I think. It's also the case, I think, that what we what we realized or decided at least gambled on was that the real story was a much bigger story. It wasn't. The, it wasn't the story of Bernie's campaign. That would be interesting for a little bit, but but the much bigger story was about the movement itself. This clearly is this for, for us felt like, and I think it really is this moment where 
the, the, the giants are stirring or the sleeping giant is stirring. There's this enormous opportunity to build something around progressive values and progressive politics out of this election. And that's the story that we wanted to tell. We didn't know at the time. I mean, when we started, we didn't even know for sure Bernie was going to run. That was a kind of a gamble. And we certainly didn't know that all the things that were happening would um, emerge the way they have into what now really does feel like a thing that could be a, could be a real movement or really re-energizing of the progressive movement. So, yeah, it's turned out really well. The thing really is there. Bernie was right. The thing was out there and waiting for him or somebody to galvanize it and then and then the story we decided we wanted to tell turns out to actually be a really, I think, a really important story. So as you have had this front row seat to this incredible phenomenon and you've both been in the, the inside and having this incredible vantage point, how do you see climate fitting into what's happening in the country right now? And um, how do you see the climate work differently and how do you think it's fitting in now, and and do you have any thoughts about where it's headed or where it should be headed? I think the climate movement has enjoyed a few years of really important successes. Keystone, the International Climate Treaty, a presidential administration that has taken more seriously in recent years than it had in the past renewable energy and energy efficiency and other things that reduce carbon emissions. And moving beyond coal. Yes. <laughs> and let me let me not forget <laughs> beyond coal. So clearly the climate movement itself is riding some kind of real momentum that's hard earned over a long period of time. I think that the climate movement and Bernie, who isn't, you know, he's not climate movement per se, but he's clearly this very close ally of the movement. I think the two of them together get a lot of credit for shaping the, the Democratic nominee's climate agenda. The overwhelming majority of scientists are saying, A, climate change is real. Climate change is caused by human activity. Climate change is already causing devastating problems in the United States and around the world. And if we do not get our act together by significantly reducing carbon and methane emissions, that situation will only get worse. I think Clinton's agenda is demonstrably stronger on climate, her language and her actual policy positions than they would have been, and they certainly than they were, and I think than they would have been. So I, I would count that as, a, as an important success as well. I think on the broader question of, well, and I'll also say the climate movement and the environmental movement maybe writ large, has an opportunity to be consequential in the election. This is going to be a very, I think this is going to be a very difficult election. I think we have all, from the very beginning, we underestimated Trump. I think that Clinton is going to have a very difficult time beating him. I certainly think she can, but I think it's a hard, really hard race. Climate moving can clearly, just like lots of other movements that have the ability to mobilize lots of people, can play a consequential role in the presidential race as well as all the down ticket races. Donald thinks that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. I think it's real. I, I did I not. Science I do not, is real. I do not say that. And I think it's I do important not say that. that we grip this and deal with it both at home and abroad. And here's what we can do. We can deploy a half a billion more solar panels. We can have enough clean energy to power every home. We can build a new modern electric grid. That's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of new economic activity. So I've tried to be very specific about what we can and should do, and I am determined that we're going to get the economy really moving again, building on the progress we've made over the last eight years, but never going back to what got us in trouble in the first place. I think the 
open questions that are most interesting to me is what happens post-election. Historically, the environmental movement, not just climate, has had this approach to organizing and power building, which has mostly amounted to, or maybe the default has amounted to, find people that don't look quite like us that we can put in front of cameras and say the things that we want them to say, say our message. So we get ranchers or farmers or doctors or whomever. Pastors. And, I work with a lot of faith communities. So, yeah. And that's been our model. And that's, They call it the rent-a-collar model. <laughs> that's very funny. It, it's, it's great for media hits and not so great for power building or relationship building. So I think part of our challenge as a movement is in deep ways to think really differently about how we build those relationships. And there are certainly counterexamples. There are certainly moments in the history of the environmental movement and even in recent years where the environmental movement has approached relationship building and coalition building differently than that. But that's certainly, that's the default mode. It's, was really, it's been really cool to me to see leaders in the environmental movement, climate leaders in particular, like Michael Bruhn, for example. Who is the executive director of the Sierra Club. Talk really clearly about Black Lives Matter and racial justice issues. I think that's a great example of where the the political goals of those movements don't have a lot in common. And there isn't this sort of obvious, you can kind of stretch, yeah, certainly climate change will disproportionately impact uh, people of color and low income. I mean, you can tell those stories and they're true, but that's that's not, if we're going to build a powerful relationship between these movements, it's not going to start with us telling them why our issue is important to them or should be important to them. It's mm-hmm. going to start with an acknowledgement that the world looks really different when you're thinking about, say, racial justice or racism or or law, uh, criminal justice reform. And one of the most poignant and important movements in the campaign, which is not really about climate, but it is about this question more broadly, was was when the Black Lives Matter movement charged the stage again and again and again and demanded that the Democratic candidates at least think and talk about racism differently than they had been. Thank you, Seattle, for being one of the most progressive cities in the United States of America. If you do not listen to her, you're about to be shut down right now. And that was charging the stage at uh, Netroots Nation Conference and last in year. Seattle, and and after was, that, it was over. And multiple events. Yeah, but, thank you. Yeah, it started at Netroots, but then happened multiple times after. And to their to Bernie's credit, to Hillary's credit, to O'Malley's credit, they were you know they didn't ju- they took them time to kind of make sense of it, but they all began to talk about race in a in a different way, which is a good sign. The prominent leaders of the of the climate movement overtly saying we stand in solidarity with. Black Lives Matter. That's a powerful statement. I think there's a ton of work still to do. That's not, I mean, that's, it goes without saying that's inadequate, but that's a, that's very different from how we normally think about building relationships across movements. And that at least suggests that we have the right people and the right mindset to think differently about having conversations, say we climate having conversations with Black Lives Matter about what are your needs. What do you, what's the policy agenda look like for you? Where can we be supportive of your agenda as opposed to how can we get you to be helpful to ours and build relationships out of that moment? So I think the the climate movement is, is really encouraging to see climate leaders take those kinds of steps and use that kind of language and express solidarity in such clear terms. And there's an opportunity, I think, for the climate movement 
to be part of the knitting together across progressive movements that I think, I think we need. We don't think, I don't think we build the kind of momentum around progressive politics without doing that. And the climate movement, I think, is, has the opportunity to, to play a really central role in doing that. So, you know, you were Bernie's climate staffer, so you have seen the sausage making in Washington around climate change, and it's looking like we are, you know, hopefully going to have Hillary Clinton as our president. Um, So it's sort of a two-part question. Based on that experience and, you know, working on climate for Bernie Sanders, um, you know, the clock is ticking. We're in a race against time on climate change. So, so what what is the best of that that you hope that Hillary would bring to the table? Not necessarily a laundry list of policies, but just sort of the, the, the aspiration. And what do you think the progressive movement should be doing to push her to do as much as she can? I think that the most important lesson of 2008 is that we progressives broadly got the guy elected and felt like we had done our job we were tired and we did it. There was this collective widespread sense that we had accomplished the thing we needed to accomplish was to elect this African-American progressive to the White House. And then we kind of went away. And I think that was, that in retrospect, that was a, it was a terrible mistake for two reasons. One is he couldn't do what he needed to do without a really strong, energized, vocal left that was, that was, uh, marching on the White House and creating political pressure in all the ways that that you create political pressure. He didn't have that. So where he was sympathetic, he didn't have the space and cover. And where he wasn't, he didn't have the pressure he needed. In 2016 or in 2017, if we're so lucky as to have a President Clinton in the White House, that's a mistake we can't afford to make again. Wherever it is we get her ultimately in the campaign on climate, her that is not her core issue that's not the thing she's going to go to bed every night thinking about. It's not the thing that drives her every morning when she gets up, I don't think. Our challenge is going to be to make sure she feels enormous pressure to to push really hard on the executive branch side, which is still probably the place where we'll have the best opportunities. But I think we as the movement have the obligation and the need to to play a very different game. To even How retired we are, in December and January to figure out how to, how to kick it up because that's, that's the game's going to be on us to, to set the political stage. Let me break that down into three things that I think we need to do. One of them is demonstrating power, people in the streets, numbers, that what you're talking about, demonstrating the people power and the passion. Um, another is, is, what also what you talked about before of bringing in the broader progressive movement to this so it really does feel like it's not just the environmentalists anymore but this is sort of humanity is 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 uh rising up and then the third that i've been thinking about is to make both of those things happen uh do we need to start talking about it differently and uh you know one of the things about Hillary that I love is she's always centered in women and children and as a mother and as someone who is I mean I have watched my daughter watch a woman run for the White House this is not anything that I got to experience and uh and I think there are um 
a lot of people who, if they, if they could connect the dots between their own kids that they love and this very dire threat of climate change would suddenly be with us. And we aren't talking about it that way. We're talking about parts per million and degrees of Celsius. And, and, and I just would love to hear your thoughts about both. We need the people and the movement, but we need the, the passion and the connection. And I feel like that's another, another piece of work ahead of us if we want to win. In the in the Hillary Clinton administration, I agree. I think you're certainly right about the power, the the people power piece. Outside game politics depends on that, and we won't win climate playing inside. We know that. I think one of the the traps around climate change we need to not fall into uh, is defeatism that we're going to lose. And when I look at the possibility of Hillary Clinton in the White House and this vibrant progressive movement pushing her in this critical window of time for our planet, I think we can accomplish some incredible things. I think we could really actually turn the corner and really take the leadership that President Obama has started to demonstrate and really uh, put it into overdrive. And so I would love it if you could share for us if we do our very best work and Hillary Clinton wins this election, what do you think is possible in the next four years? Well, I certainly think what you're—I think what you're saying. I th- we are clearly capable of turning the corner. We, the barriers to dramatically reducing greenhouse gas emissions across the country—they are not technical. They're not technological. They're not engineering challenges. Those are all things we have to solve as we scale up. But that's not; those aren't the the barriers that are preventing us. These are policy and political barriers. It is clearly, we are clearly capable of turning the corner. I don't know what the exact numbers are. I don't know what sort of, what percentage we can, of renewable energy driving our system we can accomplish by what year, but we clearly can hit an inflection point that sets us on the path that we need to to be on. I think, I think we as progressives have long held this fantasy that if we can, if we can win the white, the White House drives our political vision, and if we can win the White House, then everything else that we want to see happens will happen, and it's just it's patently false. So part of our challenge is, of course, we need to throw everything we have into making sure Hillary Clinton is the next president. But even if we're successful, that's just one small piece of the much bigger campaign, much bigger game, and much bigger effort. It has to be, or or will fail. And, and likewise, or, or like on the contrary, I guess, if, if Clinton doesn't win, if Trump, if we have, if we're dealing with president Trump, the, the burden is, is the same. We have to do all the same kinds of things we'd have to do anyway, maybe more, but the work is the same work. We're building a movement that isn't about who sits in the white house. It's about changing the way politics happens, at least around climate, if not, hopefully across the entire progressive agenda. And I think we can do it. I think so too. So, Jacob, you are wonderful. I hope you will come visit us soon. Hazel misses you. Uh, And can you please tell folks where they can find you and your work on the Internet? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I can't wait to come visit. It's been a while. (laughs) You can find me at jacobzsmith.com. And on Twitter, I'm at jacobzsmith. And um, I should probably just stop there. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much, Jacob. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you both. This is great. I appreciate it. All right. That just about does it for us. Anna Jane and I want to thank you all so much for listening. And big thanks again to our guest, Jacob Smith. 
This episode was produced by the illustrious Zach Mack, who as part of his planet-friendly vegetarian diet can whip up a delicious spicy red curry. Subscribe to us on iTunes and please also leave us a review on iTunes. This really helps us out and helps people find the podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and we'll be posting all episodes and updates and information about upcoming episodes on our Twitter page at NPLH Podcasts. So be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or have any questions, comments, suggestions, or want to be part of our show by reading a dinner party climate fact for an upcoming episode, tweet us. Again, we are at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there's no place like home.